optimism, an example. And the way the world's changing and the innovation, particularly in technology, I actually think that every time you kind of get, it's back to your short-term, long-term, you kind of miss the point, right? We live in a world of huge co-opetition. You know, some of our strongest investors, we overlap with, right? Salesforce is an investor, Zoom is an investor, ServiceNow is an investor. And so on the margin, you're never going to have this perfect, but don't get too hung up on that in your in your pursuit of your competitive kind of moat that you're trying to build. And again, it comes back to something John Chambers always used to push, which was this one plus one should equal three, but it isn't just going to be given to you on a plate. You've got to go find that partner, you know, sharing that success. So I think ecosystem is Welcome to the Jess Larson Show, where I interview innovators and leaders. Today on the show, I've got Tony Bates, Chairman and CEO of Genesis. Tony, in part one, we talked a lot about your book, Empathy in Action. We talked about Genesis. We talked about personalization and different technologies and AI and and thinking about personalization, not as targeting, but from the human aspect. Maybe one part we didn't touch on. Can you talk about this concept of orchestration as you think about these touch points? Yeah. So at sort of at the highest level, as I mentioned earlier, really, when we think about creating these personalized empathetic experiences is you've actually got to make sure that you're orchestrating or stitching this experience across every touch point. So if you think about a business and let's use a retail business, for example, you have many points of entry into that experience, right? You have the retail store itself. Often you have the e-commerce site, you have the customer support, customer service, you know, 800 number. They may have a automated chatbot, right? Which is a separate pop. It's in the website, but very different experience. Genesis has really taken a view that if I really want to personalize and get history and context, I need to be able to listen to all of those different touch points and then orchestrate the right outcome. We touched on it a little earlier. Like once I know that you always come through a digital channel, isn't it better that I serve you through that digital channel than giving you an outbound SMS because that's the state of the art. And so this orchestration piece really matters. Some people, Salesforce says, customer 360, right? With sort of a, a view of the customer from its, its different clouds. What we really think is important though, is that you do this in real time or near real time. So every time you have an interaction, whether it's like, you know, through the genius bar, through the retail store, through the business chat, through the commerce site, you're constantly updating, you know, that preference and, and how well that one went. And one of the ways we do that is we, we actually also think about a new way of measuring the experience. So in, in the world that I, you know, contact centers grew up in, and you hear a lot about it, people talk about net promoter score as the kind of state of the art and net promoter story, score that is great, but one of its downsides is it's only sort of as good as the last experience. And it's basically sort of like a referral system. Jess, would you recommend Genesis based on the last transaction, right? We actually think that it needs to be much more sophisticated and much deeper. And so we really weight the experience based on these three E's I've mentioned a lot, efficiency, effectiveness, and empathy. And as I use that example in the part one of, of, of my mother, she needs a much more empathetic password change experience. I just want it very effective. And so you can actually start to get this feedback and then use that to help drive the orchestration. And so it's not just stitching some, some signals together and presenting a, a view of the customer. It's actually, what do you do in each one of those based on what your 
personalized needs are, right? Versus what a, a cohort of your age group, et cetera, needs. So that's really what we're, we're about. And that, that, that's where, where we talk about orchestration at the highest level. Now, there's one other part to this that might be interesting for your listeners is one of the first things when you think about change, you could, I hope everyone reads the book and gets excited, but it's kind of like you have to first decide, do I want to change, right? Like, because most people probably think, you know, yeah, they know deep down their experience could be better, but how do you really assess where you are on that journey? And so we also have, and it's available at the website, it's also in the book, this idea of an empathy assessment. So you can actually assess kind of where you are on your experience to deliver your customers, you know, from sort of basic transactional at one end, all the way to full empath at the other at the other end. And then we even outline steps, how you can introduce technology and stages to do. And you'd said it at the beginning, and I want to come back, like if, if the holy grail is almost to be full empath, like you really, really emulate the best possible relationship, business to customer or be, even business to employee you know, why not try and get all the way up on the top of that assessment scale? And then we help you through that journey. So it's, it's a sort of a journey that people have to take. Yeah. Um, no, I, I love it. I kind of want to switch gears though. I want to talk a little bit about you and about success. When you think about, you know, running a company with 6,700 employees, $2 billion in revenue, and you know, these, these different things you've done as you've leveled up over your career, CEO at Skype and president of GoPro and all these different things. Um, what are some of the things you attribute that success to? There's so many people that would like to have had a career at the level you've had that haven't. What do you think that you've done differently? You know, I, I think it starts with something that I opened the book about. I, I was very fortunate. Like my ultimate two key heroes and mentors in my life is actually my mother and my wife. And at their root, they instilled in me very early, starting my mom, that empathy is really an important aspect of leadership. And, you know, it's a very simple phrase, but it's, it's so relevant in our discussion today. And I think in the world today, which is never judge a, a person until you walk a mile in their shoes. And so I think part of what I would say in the success, and when I landed in America and I, 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 you know, I worked at MCI for a couple of years and then went to Cisco, I always used to think about that. And it always was a, a good kind of neutralizer. You know, as, as you get in larger companies, you hear this word like, oh, I love this company, but it's too political. As it, you hear this a lot, you know? And I used to always sort of fight against that saying it, it's just a question of understanding where the other person's coming from. If you take an approach in leadership that says that all of us are doing our best, but we can all do better, it's, you know, continuous learning. I think that has been helpful for me as a, a guardrail. The Cisco experience was, we got big. We were the largest company in the world. I don't know if you remember, for one day, largest market cap, and then in that boom bust happened. And throughout that whole period, I was just so hungry to learn and never got too caught up in, 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 in the success of what we were doing and never, you know, believed it was somehow about me. It was about everything and the, the experience of, of being, you know, of sort of learning on that journey. What I love about technology, and yeah, I wrote a book, but I think that you can't figure this all out by reading books. So a book's a nice framework to apply, but it's really about on the job and, and being in the situation, having an open mind. And so I think that's been helpful. I think secondarily is having great mentors and leaders who took chances on me along the way. You know, all of us need some luck, but you have to kind of make your own way. I, I used to like sort of thinking about risk taking, but doing it calculated. I know there's a fast, a fail fast mentality, but when you get an opportunity, you've got to seize it, but you want to do it in a way that you feel like you can sort of drive the outcome 
right? Can't be just given to you. So sometimes you, you hear people get kind of stuck in their career and they're like, well, what do I need? They ask me, what do I need to do to get to the next level? What I always say is the minute you've asked me that, you've kind of lost the point, right? Which is, it's not about you checking some box on two or three metrics. It's about how you embracing your opportunity. I'm not saying the world is totally a meritocracy, but I always kind of viewed my career through that lens more than some playbook or some manual that you're given. So I think that's number two. And then I think third thing is being very flexible in thinking about um, the shifts in technology. I've been lucky to see the internet age, the information age, the, you know, the communications we take it for granted. It's crazy, right? We're, we're doing this. It's almost seamless. You know, we're throwing video images all over screens all over the world. I mean, it's just mind-blowing. But sort of being open and staying current is the third thing. And then not getting too caught up in technology, right? Not coveting the technology for technology's sake. There's a couple of things in the book. I have these leadership corners and I touch on this. It's like sometimes the best thing you can do is give up on something, not in the sense of completely, you know, just walking away, but step back and say, wow, maybe I was too deep into that and I missed I missed the broader picture. So I, I think those are some of the, the learnings. I'm going to have to think about those. Those are good. Maybe my next question, it's, it's related, but different. Thinking about startups today, you know, there's founders listening to the show who would really love to get to the point where they're doing $2 billion a year in revenue. We've talked about things of, you know, on, on part one, we talked about platform first and long-term thinking. Is there anything you'd add to that? For, for startup founders who they, they really want to go the distance? Yeah, culture really matters. But culture needs to be really long-term sustainable, like we talked about. It can't be changing all the time to fit the, the lo- latest in vogue cool piece. You have to really walk the talk as well. You can't say embrace empathy and then not be someone who embraces empathy. And I know that sounds so obvious when I say it, but it happens a lot, right? Where culture becomes more of a a, a PowerPoint bullets that are in an elevator versus actually how you run the company. So I think that's really, really important. Second thing is scale to $2 billion. You need to have the team around you to do it. And there are moments, right, where the team has to potentially change. You may have to change your whole thinking as well. And I think that's really, really an important aspect I, I would say since i joined genesis and we've we've had tremendous growth is hire people that have seen more scale it's difficult in the beginning right but making those shifts and feeling okay about it is really important people decisions are you know for every leader out there including myself some of the hardest things you have to go through but there are different moments in time right you can't expect someone who has never sort of run you know a two billion dollar sales organization to suddenly figure it out when they're doing five million dollars and so those moments are really really important so i think culture team and then the other thing i just want to mention is leverage the ecosystem i know that sounds simple to say but like the world we live in today is not a zero-sum game so i think in a lot of the older way of thinking about business it was like competition there's a you know a surface area of total available market and like well you know if i give Amazon some, you know, they're going to take the rest. I'm just using them as a, an example. And the way the world's changing and the innovation, particularly in technology, I actually think that every time you kind of get, it's back to your short-term, long-term, you kind of miss the point, right? We live in a world of huge co-opetition. You know, some of our strongest investors we overlap with, right? Salesforce is an investor, Zoom is an investor, ServiceNow is an investor. And so 
on the margin, you're never going to have this perfect, but don't get too hung up on that in your, in your pursuit of your competitive kind of moat that you're trying to build. And again, it comes back to something John Chambers always used to push, which was this one plus one should equal three, but it isn't just going to be given to you on a plate. You've got to go find that partner, you know, sharing that success. And so I think ecosystem is really, really important. It is one of the only ways you're going to get to scale at some point. Same with partners, right? If you had a principle, like a guiding principle for embracing co-opetition, what would you say? Hmm. Never get caught in the what if trap. So let me unpack that for you, especially when it's a larger partner. You know how much wasted energy there is around, well, what if they do this or what if they do that? You know, because existential threat is real from some of the largest players, but it's just the waste of energy. So I think that would be my framework. It's like how, instead of thinking on the what if, think on the what can we do together? You know, and look, many great companies have tried many great things and haven't pulled them all off perfectly. So I think that's a good way to go into it. And a lot of people I, I've noticed don't. They're, they're all paranoid and, well, if I share this information, then they're going to know all my secrets. And, and I think that maybe that works in certain businesses. We're doing a cool little consumer product. Maybe maybe that worked early days at Apple, but I'm not sure that works anymore. Interesting. Okay, we're, we're wrapping up here. This one's going to be a, a total left field question, but I heard that your favorite book is The Eight by Catherine Neville or one of your favorite books. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So, so now I have to reread. I read that book maybe like, I don't know, 15 years ago or something. And I don't remember enough about it except that I liked it. What did you like about that book? Well, I like about The Eight and for those without without revealing everything, it's a, it's a fictional book, but it's completely grounded in historical perspective. And so it goes through this journey of this chess set, if you remember. Uh, and eight is very prominent on the chessboard, but it's really not just about that. And so I think why I like it is that it sort of gives you this vision of something that you can imagine. And it feels so real because it's grounded in all these facts. And I think it's sort of part of the way I think. It's sort of like create this bigger vision and then stitch together data to, be to believe it, right? So I don't know. It's just always stuck with me. I like history. You know, I I'm British, a background, and a lot of it's about European history. They talk about Charlemagne's chess set. So yeah, it's good you picked up on that. I hadn't, I hadn't, I should read it again myself. <laughs> okay, well, I've got two book recommendations for you then, okay? The first one is Irving Stone's book, The Agony and the Ecstasy, about Michelangelo's life. And uh, it, it really just dives into, it really gives you such a three-dimensional version of what life was like then and why potentially he made the decisions he did that we're still talking about however many hundreds of years later. But the other one you might like even more is called Natural Born Heroes. And it's about a bunch of Brits who were harassing the Nazis on the island of Cyprus during World War II and really how they potentially kept they potentially kept very large numbers of Nazis from going and killing other people because they were so annoying of of doing some really daring things, including including capturing a German general from his own camp in the middle of the night under anybody's noses without any gunshots fired. And and just like it's fascinating. It takes like modern science and kind of some of the Cyprus mythology and the way they trained and these Brits who learned how to run through the mountains and and hide from the Nazis and and it just had like a, a a really actually kind of significant impact on that part of the war, but you don't hear about, but it's like it's like a full action movie. 
the whole book yeah. is like high adrenaline. So well, I probably would enjoy it. One of the things that I've always been fascinated about in tech is the tons of those stories and we don't even know, right? Tech is all built on the backs of these type of incredible innovators, sometimes small components, you know, like going way back, like the transistor, we, you know, and high level languages that we take for granted today. And I'm really in awe of that. Like, you know, like when you really look at people that push through and sometimes it's on some tiny piece of machine code or, you know, a system library in C that, that everyone uses today. And so it is very fascinating to me. I think it's really important that people have a perspective, but they don't get too hung up on the nostalgia because everyone should be building the future. But I love it. I love the sound of it. I love that type <laughs> approach. Well, uh, uh, you'll have to let me know. If you do get a chance to listen to it, I'd love to. I will do it. Okay, final question here. Um, when you think about one of the best pieces of advice you've ever received, what's one of them that comes to mind? Yeah, the best piece of advice I've ever received, and again, John Chambers, and it's very apropos for right now, is you have to deal with the world the, world, the way it is, not the way you want it to be. And never is that more important than right now, given the incredible about of signals we're getting on the economy. And we didn't talk about this today, but I think it's very, very powerful. So vision, all of that, but then ground it in pragmatic reality of what you're dealing with. And that was the balance point that we talked about earlier. Yeah, I love it. Well, everybody, go get your own copy of Empathy in Action. Check out Genesis if you want to have your customers feel more empathy from your company. And Tony, I really appreciate all the time you made for us today. Yeah, you're welcome. And it was great talking to you. Great. Bye, everyone.